Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only show from RNZ Sport. I'm Joe Porter. In the programme this week, Swimming New Zealand has its funding slashed and could lose it altogether. We look at the other winners and losers from the latest round of high-performance sport New Zealand funding. Paralympics New Zealand is owed money from Rio 2016 organisers. New Zealand Rugby appoints its first female board member. The Barrett brothers dominate the New Zealand Rugby Awards with Bowden the big winner. We rate the New Zealand seven sides early season form. Tennis New Zealand brings home a top coach for a new high-performance role. And the New Zealand Bowls team send their coach out with a bang. Swimming New Zealand is effectively on a final funding warning in the wake of disappointing performances at the Rio Olympics. A lack of a medal or a placing in the pool at the 2016 Games has proved costly, with swimming losing $400,000 in funding for next year. There have also been significant funding cuts for the All Blacks Sevens, cycling, football and triathlon, while yachting New Zealand, athletics and canoe racing were rewarded for strong showings in Rio with funding boosts. New Zealand Swimming, though, will have some hard decisions to make following their drastic cut, and John Campbell asked High Performance Sport New Zealand CEO Alex Bauman if there was room to reconsider. That's a full and final decision, uh, the 900k uh, committed for uh, for two years. I mean, we can clarify how we reached that decision, and we can have that discussion with them. Uh, but uh, it's gone from 1.3 million to 900,000, uh, based on the fact uh, that uh, one the performance is in Rio, not one swimmer made the final, uh, and, and also some of the key milestones as as well. Um, now, having said that, I think they've moved a long way in the last uh, 18 months. Uh, but the focus has to be on the National Training Centre and the head coach uh, for, for swimming to try to develop that centre of excellence where athletes actually want to uh, compete and, and train. So that, that's a final um, figure, but we can have that discussion. Right. I want to go back to what you gave them previously. You gave them $1.3 million, right? Correct. Okay. And they didn't get a swimmer into the finals at Rio. In other words... Doesn't that tell you something about the cause and effect and what an inexact science this is? They were heftily backed. It didn't work out. Your money didn't work there, did it? Well, in terms of the investment, I mean, there's four criteria that we take a look at. One is past performance, uh, which would be in Rio, and obviously the last four years as well. They've had uh, some good results in world championships, obviously with Lauren uh, winning world championship medals uh, in the last three years leading into the Games. But we take a look at future potential. We take a look at the quality of the high-performance program. And finally, we take a look at the individual context of the sport. And that just means that some sports are more expensive than others, team sports versus individual sports. So those are the four criteria that we take a look at. So past historical performance is one of those criteria. It's an important one. There's no doubt because the Olympics are important. And ultimately, our goal was 14-plus medals. We have to take a look at sports that can reach, uh, help us reach that goal. We have 16-plus for Tokyo. So obviously your job is to back winners, and that makes absolute sense. 
But it strikes me, looking at who got less money and who got more money, that you kind of make those decisions after the fact, don't you? I mean, wouldn't it be better to get it right in advance? Well, no, I don't think we back them after the fact. Obviously, as I said, that's one of the criteria. But uh, it's not an exact science, but we take a look at what the potential is for the future because I believe that if you're going to have a world-leading system, you have to have sustainability. So it's not only for the next pinnacle event or for Tokyo. It's beyond that. It's supporting some athletes. And with the Tier 1 sports, Tier 2 sports, we go down below four years, uh, four to eight years to podium. So we're supporting athletes eight years away from podium. Okay, so sustainability and also accountability, right? Because you don't want to give money to people who aren't providing a meaningful return on investment. I guess there are some people who did better than you had expected them to because they have had an increase in the funding they're getting from you. Who are the big examples of that? Well, certainly uh, yachting and athletics. So if you take a look at yachting, uh, their goal was was two medals. Um, They got four four out of seven boats that competed at the Olympic Games, and there's a pipeline of athletes that are doing very, very well. So they're pretty well set for 2020. Obviously, coaching is a priority for them. Athletics, um, you know, you you could say that they overperformed. Again, their goal was uh, two medals. Um, They got four. They got some good young athletes, obviously, Eliza, uh, Tom Walsh, Mm. um, Jack O'Gill as well. They have some depth, and there's some other athletes in pole vault, and shop put that are coming up as as well. So they've done very well. They moved from a tier two sport uh, to a tier one sport, and and the investment increases. The third sport, I guess, is canoe racing, where obviously Lisa's exploits have been uh, outstanding at the Olympic Games. She'll be going on to 2020. And um, there are some other female athletes that, that are in the fray in terms of the K4, where, where they finished fifth in, in Rio, which was an outstanding uh, result. So we see a lot of potential. They will centralize in Carapiro at the end of uh, 2017. And perhaps the final one is, is Paralympics. Paralympics did an outstanding yeah, job. Yeah, they had a wonderful games. Yeah. 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 Can- and so they, they have an increase as, as well. Okay. Can we talk about rowing? Bond and Murray going, is that part of the decision to give rowing less money? Uh, Not really. I think, um, yes, uh, agree that, um, you know, some of those athletes are taking a sabbatical, which which they can do in in rowing. They can come back. That's that's been uh, proven. Uh, But it's more that, um, you know, they didn't reach their target. Um, You know, five medals was a target. They still did well with two gold medals and one silver. And uh, second on the medal table in, in tied for second in the medal table in, in, in rowing because more countries won medals. It was a bit more difficult. But uh, there's some changes that, that have to happen. If you compare it to 2015 World Championship results, they are disappointed that they didn't get to the five. So the 200 is just an indication that um, they, they did well. It really is a, a small decrease uh, given that they had 5.3 million. It goes to 5.1 million, but they'll have to cut their cloth accordingly. Gosh, this is a matter of fact, isn't it? And, and kind of unsentimental. I mean, you and I are talking uh, very rationally about yeah. Yeah. money and performance and return on investment. And if we think of the beginnings of the Olympics as an amateur sport and people running around nude and grease and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> what you're saying actually is we've got a finite amount of money and we want some bang for our buck. We have to. And, and you know, we're, we're very fortunate that the government has supported to the tune of, of $66 million. But, you know, it's a top-down approach. Um, we have a goal of 16-plus for, for Tokyo, uh, 10 to 14 gold medals on the Paralympic front. 
and winning world championships in, in non-Olympic sports. And, um, you know, I don't believe in, in distributing the, the funds so uh, equally that it actually doesn't make a difference. So there's going to be winners and losers, but it, it is a performance-based approach and there there is accountability. And we shouldn't shy away from that. We have to make some hard calls. Alex Bauman speaking to John Campbell. Paralympics New Zealand is still owed almost $40,000 by the Rio Paralympics organisers nearly four months after the event was held. The money is owed for travel grants for athletes and team officials, which is part of the contractual agreement to host the Olympics and Paralympics. All up, the International Paralympic Committee is owed $5 million, 38000 of which is Paralympic New Zealand's. The chief executive of Paralympics New Zealand, Fiona Allen, who is currently in Japan inspecting facilities ahead of the Tokyo Games in 2020, says the money accounts for 10% of their annual budget of $4 million. We've got confidence in International Paralympic Committee that they'll be acting on our behalf with the reorganising committee. Um, I guess it's frustrating for them to be awaiting those funds and then being able to then distribute those to the National Paralympic Committees. And for us as an organisation, um, I guess um, we will need to await uh, to see um, the fruition of um, the good work that they can do on our behalf. It would seem, given what we are seeing come out of Rio and the financial problems, that the money may never appear at all. Potentially. I guess that's one of the, uh, the, the things we've considered as an organisation, that, that that money may never um, be be provided to us um, as a nation. And I guess that's our challenge is then to, to source as to uh, where else Paralympics New Zealand might be able to source that investment. Has the IPC been able to give you any indication as to how they think the money or whether it will be received or at what time it might be received? The IPC haven't been able to indicate that. I, I guess... Um, they they themselves um, are not sure and have not been given timelines as to when that money will be received or gifted from um, reorganising committee yet. I mean, there's a great responsibility for for host organisers um, to commit to what they've agreed to commit to, um, and and I guess it's a learning uh, from Rio. I'm currently up in Tokyo, and uh, I'm sure the the organising committee, you know, would be uh, not wanting to be in a similar position in four years' time. Fiona Allen speaking to Stephen Hewson. New Zealand Rugby has appointed its first ever female board member, former Blackfern Dr Farah Palmer. The appointment comes as the union battles a tarnished image following a year where players have been involved in a number of scandals. Dr Palmer played for the Blackferns for a decade, winning three World Cups, and outside of rugby she's a lecturer at Massey University. She spoke to Morning Report's Susie Ferguson, who asked her if rugby in New Zealand is still an old boys club. Well, it has been for 120 years and there have been some women that have put their names forward in the independent board role and um, coming through the provincial unions. Uh, So it is a big moment. How are you going to ensure that your appointment will make a difference? Well, I'm I'm only one woman and I think, you know, it's a a huge responsibility to try and make sure that I represent all, all diversity issues. But that's what my passion is, so I will be doing my best and I'll be trying to bring a different perspective to the board table. You're saying that you're only one woman. How much of this feels like tokenism? 
Oh, look, I had I had a huge kind of debate with myself when I was thinking about putting my name forward because I did not want to be the token female on the board, and I don't think I'm there for that reason. I do have a passion for the game. I've had experience in a range of um, roles within rugby, and I bring with me, you know, my academic knowledge and and my passion for diversity and inclusion. So I think I do bring a lot of other things. Uh, so yes, that was something I was concerned about, but I've had conversations with lots of other women and lots of Māori stakeholders and I feel that the timing is right for me. Is there any concern in your mind also because you've come in on the Māori seat rather than perhaps because you're a woman solely? Yeah, I mean, I tick two boxes, don't I? I'm Māori and I'm (laughs) I'm a female, so that's convenient. But I don't, you know, I am passionate about Māori rugby. I've been on the Māori Rugby Board for um, almost a decade now. So I, I do feel like that is something that I'll be advocating on the board. Um, do I think that it's it's a bit of a concern? No, but I think while I'm there, I will definitely be looking at how we can make um, pathways for more diversity onto the board and at the provincial union as well. Having seen what's happened in rugby over the last few months, what was your personal opinion, I suppose, of what happened around the chief scandal and how that was handled? I think the New Zealand Rugby uh, Organisation has acknowledged that they could have done things better in that area um, in terms of how it was handled. So they've learnt from that. We've got the Respect and Responsibility Panel. We've had a diversity working group as well. There are lots of things going on in terms of champion for change and that kind of thing going on in the background. So I do think the organisations learnt from it. But it personally, as a woman, I found it very, very tough. Um, you know, this is a sport that I love and this is something, uh, rugby something that I've been championing around the community for a while now. So that I think that was kind of like, for me, probably the turning point where I decided, you know, I don't want to kind of be on the outside looking in. I want to see if I can uh, get in there and get involved and, and help with the change of the culture. So that directly galvanised you to get involved because of how it went down? Yeah, I mean, I, I am passionate about this sport and it, and it was um, personally upsetting for me to think that there will be a woman out there who maybe don't feel safe in this environment. So that is of a concern to me and that's something that did make me want to put my hand hand up and say, right, I'm ready for this. Should there have been an independent inquiry? Uh, well, I think that the New Zealand Rugby Union's addressed those um, concerns and, and have talked through all of that. And as I said, they acknowledge that they that things could have been done better and they've learnt from it. Is there a bit of a gulf still in rugby, perhaps with what is happening at the top where you are? And what happens at the grassroots and rugby clubs that are pretty much bastions of a, of a male-dominated culture that perhaps women might not feel that comfortable in? I think there might be a little bit of a disconnect um, and, you know, it's been 120 years since there's been a woman, well, for a woman to be on the board, so there is some disconnect. But there is an acknowledgement that we and we need to address these things and we need to reflect New Zealand society because we want to be a sport that is unifying and inspiring and to do that we need to make sure that we represent our stakeholders. So I think that there's an acknowledgement that that's something that needs to change. So that's got to change right across the sport right across that culture. Yeah, and culture takes a, a while to change, doesn't it? And and it's great that we're that the organisation is showing leadership at the top, 
But as I said, I'm, I'm just one person. So there's other things going on. We've got three female CEOs at the provincial union level, which is great. We've got women on the boards in the, at the provincial union level and at the super rugby level. So that from the ground up, there's been some progress. Uh, we've got women who are coaching and refereeing now. I think we can do better in the Pacifica area in terms of having those people in, in roles around admin and governance as well. So, you know, there are lots of things we're doing well and there are lots of things we can improve on. Christmas party season for a lot of places as well at the moment. What would your advice be to clubs as they're looking to get that together and and what entertainment they might be choosing? Oh, sorry, I didn't get the first part of your question. Oh, I'm just saying there's a lot of Christmas parties uh, kicking off at this time of year. What would your advice be to, to rugby clubs that are perhaps thinking about what exactly they might have at their do this year? I think you should, uh, family inclusiveness I think is a great thing you know something to keep the kids occupied and to allow the adults to have some conversation and, and a laugh and you know have a great time so. Do you think it's likely any teams are going to go for a stripper this year? I would hope not I think the message has been loud and clear from the New Zealand rugby that that's not appropriate uh, so yeah I would hope that wouldn't happen And uh, I actually don't know how this setup works, but do you think there'll ever be a time, is it even possible, that there could be women playing for the All Blacks? Uh, no. No, I think uh, personally, as a black fern, I felt just as much mana playing for New Zealand as a black fern, and I would never want to be an All Black. You know, that's, for me, the, the pinnacle was playing in the black jersey for the black ferns. Now we've got the black ferns and the black fern sevens, and I think, you know, that's what we would be aspiring towards. Dr Farah Palmer speaking to Susie Ferguson. The All Blacks' first five, Bowden Barrett, capped a stellar season this week by claiming the Player of the Year prize at the New Zealand Rugby Awards in Auckland. Barrett and younger brother Geordie were the Knights' big winners, scooping four awards between them. Bowden Barrett has had an outstanding season, starring for the Hurricanes as they won their maiden Super Rugby title, before beating out Aaron Cruden as the All Blacks' first-choice first five following the departure of Dan Carter. He guided New Zealand to 13 wins from 14 tests and was named World Rugby's Player of the Year last month. Barrett also scooped the Super Rugby Player of the Year award, while 19-year-old brother Geordie was named Age Grade Player of the Year and Mitre 10 Cup Player of the Year. Salika Winiata won Women's Player of the Year. All Blacks hooker Dane Co- all Blacks hooker Dane Coles was named Māori Player of the Year, while All Blacks coach Steve Hansen won Coach of the Year and the All Blacks Team of the Year. Bowden Barrett spoke to Morning Report's Susie Ferguson, who asked him which award meant more, Super Rugby Player of the Year or New Zealand Rugby Player of the Year. Super Rugby Award, um, you know, that meant a lot to me because of the season we had at the Hurricanes. It was our first championship win, so, you know, as a Hurricanes player. I'm pretty proud to win that one. I mean, it's for my teammates as well as I'm the one receiving the award, getting all the credit for it, but you know, it's a team award and for the the Caltramaine, it's not something you set out to to win, it's something, it's a by-product of two great teams being involved with this this year and I guess just trying to be the best you can be and playing some good footy throughout the year. A pretty good night last night for you, but also a pretty good night for your brother as well. Yeah, he um, he did pretty well too. So, uh, you know, it was a good family affair. It was nice to have mum and dad there. I'm sure they're delighted and, yeah, I'm really proud of Julie. What about this year? How has this year been for you playing rugby but also with, you know, some of the 
some of the stories that have been heading the headlines off the field as well. It's been a challenging year on and off the field. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's important to get that balance right in life. And, you know, uh, rugby is it's, it's just a game, but it's also a great opportunity to, to set yourself up, to meet some great people and to develop as a person off the field. So I think getting that balance right, it's an art. I'm getting close to nailing it. It's key so that when you turn up to training, you know, you're fresh and ready to go. And, and then when it's time to go home, you're not thinking about rugby. It's about, you know, switching off. So it's very important. Looking towards next year then, do you feel fairly secure in your position in the All Blacks, particularly with these reports of Aaron Cruden possibly heading overseas? Do you feel that you're going to be the number one pick? No, no I don't feel that. No one apart from the captain's probably a given in, in this All Black side, um, which is a great thing. It's great for the competition. It's what makes the team you know, successful is, is that competition and that, that environment. So it's going to be another challenging year for me, which is great, which, which is what I want. And yeah, no, it has to start with the Super Rugby season because that's where every year starts for me and I'm looking forward to getting back into it. After, I mean, I will be looking forward to getting back into it after a nice break. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, it start, gets underway, what, in February. There's not giving, it's not giving you that much time and space, especially with, uh, I think there's a boot camp as well before then. Is it too much training and, and too much playing potentially? Well, I mean, I'm fortunate enough. I have been fortunate enough to be injury-free this year. As a result of that, I, I was lucky enough to play a lot of rugby. So by the end of it, you're well and truly looking forward to a break. It's a great time to have a break coming into the summer. So, I mean, we love playing rugby. I'm in a privileged position to do so. And, you know, to play as many games as I have this year, it's been pretty pretty cool. So, yeah, it's just about getting that balance right, like I spoke about earlier. You know, it's more the mental side that that's most challenging because the body can handle a lot. It's about stimulating the mind, flicking the switch off and on where possible to to keep you going throughout the season. Well, look, congratulations on your win, Bowden. And just one final thing, actually. Where are you going to put these awards? <laughs> um, I'm not too sure. I haven't, haven't packed my bags for home yet. I think there's plenty of room, though. I'll, I'll see what happens. Bowden Barrett speaking to Susie Ferguson. And you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only show from RNZ Sport. The New Zealand men's rugby sevens side had a much-improved performance at the second leg of the World Series in Cape Town earlier this week. The All Black Sevens finished third after losing to the host South Africa in the semi-finals. They finished eighth in the opening round in Dubai a week earlier. Their start to the season showed that interim coaches Scott Waldrum and Tomasi Tharma weren't going to have it easy this season. Barry Guy spoke to Waldrum in Cape Town and he was generally happy with the progress they're making. To be fair, we've, we've only been together three weeks and, and we've brought in a lot of new structures and, and, and set policies and we, you know, we're trying to bring in some new moves and the way things are done. and you know, it, that, that takes time and, and it's to try and jam that in and you know, two weeks and put that into your first performance. Um, you know, it's going to take time for these guys to get used to it and then the, the another week together, you, you, know, you see the, the massive improvement they've made um, through that, and, and now we've got a good, you know, two-month program where they know what we expect, they know what we want, want to get out of them, and how things are done, and um, and they can work on that. You know, we we'll spend some time together, as well as we've now got opportunity for guys through nationals and the, the regional qualifiers to put their hands up for 
the contracts and involvement in our team and we can we can get the profile of it right and, and get the balance right and and have a good you know um, squad of 20 that we can build through for the rest of the World Series. So, you know, we should be seeing a slightly different game plan, should we, from New Zealand, perhaps? Yeah, I guess um, there, there was uh, a way Titch sort of used to run his team and run his, uh, his attack and how things were done. And, and I guess, you know, we want to come in and bring something fresh. And, um, you know, the game's constantly evolving and there's different ways of doing things. And, and we want to certainly end up leading the world and, and showing how it's done properly, uh, showing how it's done, sorry, um, and trying new things and, and getting creative in what we're doing. So if you, you, know, you stick to the same thing, you, you get readable and teams um, can start shutting that down. And with video analysis these days, you, you've constantly got to be changing and, and improving on what you're doing, and, and that's all part of it. Scott Waldrum speaking to Barry Guy. This week, Tennis New Zealand appointed New Zealander Simon Ray to the new position of High Performance Director. Ray, who's a former professional player and a New Zealand Davis Cup team member, has spent the past few years coaching with Tennis Australia, where he worked with various players such as Samantha Stosa and the controversial Nick Kyrgios. He told Denise Garland the role is bigger than being a national head coach, though he's essentially been given a blank canvas by Tennis New Zealand to build New Zealand into a more competitive force on the international stage. I don't think it's necessarily a, a pure head coaching role, perhaps in the previous sense. So there's also an element of, of working with coaches and working with you know, tournaments and competitions and, and the structure that we're going to try and provide there. So really it's a, a look across the entire performance pathway and, and certainly I'm far from a one-man band, but look forward to playing my role and, and helping the team grow and improve as, as we try to grow tennis in, in New Zealand. Obviously, you have spent uh, a lot of time in New Zealand involved in the tennis community, but also overseas. Are you able to sort of maybe talk to me about why you think this position is is needed within the tennis community here? As much as, as anything, um, in terms of what Steve Johns, the CEO and, and the board have described to me in, in discussions to this point, probably um, the most appealing factor is the, the blank canvas or the clean slate that does exist in terms of, you know, from this point through really until June of 2017, the current strategic plan comes to a conclusion and it's about uh, assessing the lay of the land, having a good rigorous look at the landscape, building relationships with people on the ground and then being really clear and, and concise and pointed in terms of what we do with the next strategy with the performance focus. And then as much as anything, uh, I think culturally, the ability to draw a collective together, be it athletes, coaches, the tennis fraternity and try and take people on, on a journey together and really try and build tennis again in this country. Do you think the culture that you talk about there, about trying to build that, do you think that is one of the reasons why New Zealand is perhaps so below par when it comes to the international tennis scene? Um, look, I, th- I certainly am a real believer in culture being a, a vital ingredient of, of success. And I guess what I do want to focus on today is that I think anything's possible. And we've seen examples from um, New Zealanders in different sports for a long period of time, not necessarily resourced or cashed up to the hill. They have punched well above their weight for 
yeah, as long as we can remember. And I think that's always been part of the Kiwi way. And so I'd like to think we can tap into that and really get to work and see what we can produce, albeit with some, some limitations and some challenges in front of us. Marina Arekovic is New Zealand's top uh, women's player. She's ranked just outside the top 100 in singles. And Finn Tierney is uh, the men's number one, and he's he's ranked well into the 400s. Is lifting uh, New Zealand's performances, uh, both in the singles and doubles, a personal goal for you? No question. And I guess any time you accept a role of this nature, ultimately, you know, high-performance sports are a results-based industry. So I'm happy to be judged accordingly. Um, and, and what I would say is obviously Marina's experienced success at, at the elite international level for a long period of time, had a wonderful career. And we're making really good strides, you know, with our Davis Cup team. Alistair Hunt's done a great job there. And in particular, on the doubles side, the guys are, are forging successful professional careers for themselves. So if we could have some of that success translate into single success on the men's side of the equation and certainly some more depth behind Marina and on, on the female side is going to be a, a really clear and key objective. Just sort of moving away from your role or your new role, um, you've obviously been involved in coaching Nick Kyrgios in recent years and he's obviously been a controversial figure in tennis. He hasn't exactly uh, had his best year. He um, had a little bit of a meltdown coming near the end of the year and I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on how you think he is sitting right now and uh, maybe what challenges he's facing at the moment. I guess chiefly, you know, I look back on my time with Nick and overwhelmingly the lens that I look through is is a positive one and really grateful and humbled that we shared the journey that we did. We had a lot of tough moments along that journey, but also some incredibly special times as well and and some great highs. And uh, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today had I not had the the good fortune to coach Nick. Um, And I'd I'd like to think that he always knows I'll I'll be a person that wants what's best for him, cares about him deeply and, and is in his corner moving forward. With that stated position, I haven't loved some of what's played out because I, I want the best for him. And I don't think well, at times what I've seen over the journey has been what, what's best for him or his future or his happiness. So I'd like that to change. Clearly, there's no question over the ability. The world's his oyster. I think he can win Grand Slams and multiple Grand Slams. I think he can be number one in the world. But I think the biggest challenge, as much as anything, probably for Nick, is finding where tennis fits in his bigger picture of life and what sort of perspective he wants to apply to his tennis and what he wants to value or or not value about it and, and the price that he's willing to pay accordingly. So I think until he has some clarity around some of those things, maybe some of the peaks and troughs that we've seen in recent years may continue. Simon Ray speaking with Denise Garland. The New Zealand bowls team's performance at the World Championships in Christchurch exceeded even their own expectations. The Black Jacks finished the tournament with two gold medals, one silver and four bronze from the eight events, with the men's fours team and men's singles player Shannon McElroy crowned new world champions. The outgoing Black Jacks coach Dave Edwards told Denise Garland he couldn't have asked for a better way to end his tenure. It's been a massive success, massive success. We're over the moon with our results. Two gold medals, a silver and four bronze, and has eclipsed even our own predictions of the number of medals we would get, so we're absolutely delighted. We're coming away with uh, two uh, New Zealand World Champion teams, or well, Shannon McElroy in the men's singles and also the men's four. How are they feeling after their performances? Oh, fantastic, over the moon. Actually, both combinations, the men's four and Shannon, really dominated their event right from day one through to that gold medal game. So it's a, it was a, a really 
just desserts for the way they've been performing throughout the entire event. And so they're absolutely delighted. Um, Shannon has, um, you know, had a couple of bronzes uh, before at World Championships. So to finally get the gold-coloured one, is, um, he's just over the moon. The women's triples were the only team not to gain a medal or reach the semi-finals. Is there a little bit of disappointment from them? Absolutely, of course. They were very disappointed. Uh, but it was a, a new combination. You know, Val Smith was the only sort of seasoned campaigner as skip of that triple, and the other two were brand new to a world championship. So it was a big ask for them. And they missed out by the narrowest of margins from qualifying for a medal. So, yeah, they are... Very, very disappointed, but um, it augurs well for the future. They've now experienced the World Championship, and so they'll, they'll, as players, they'll just go from strength to strength. Dave Edwards speaking with Denise Garland. Sharon Sims has taken Edwards' place as the national coach, assisted by Peter Ballas. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via our social media accounts and email. We'll be back next week with the next Extra Time show. Until then, I'm Joe Porter. Bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.